welcome. Hope you came for a nice, lighthearted, easy um, text this morning. Grab a coffee, kick your feet back, and uh, it's going to be a good one. Um, here's the, the beauty of the Bible, is that it's truth, and that we hold it out, and we cling to it, and we don't hide the parts we don't like or that are hard. Um, we deal with them, and we address them, and that's what makes for a healthy church. And so um, I said it a few minutes ago, and I'll say it again. Um, if you're not a Christian here, um, you basically can hang out and watch, and uh, you get a pass today because what we're really dealing with is, uh, is how, do we, how do we address sin in our lives? Um, in your life, in my life, um, we all have it. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a fun thing to do. It's not a fun thing to talk about. Um, and in fact, there's lots of churches around that you can go to that probably won't ever really talk about sin and addressing sin. They just always talk about God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Um, and you really can't have one without the other because you can't understand the massive depth of God's love until you understand the massive depth of your depravity. Um, and so, um, so as, as we dive in today, um, that, that's what's happening. Um, so go to 1 Corinthians 5. I'm reading a book called, sorry, I forgot the title for a second. It's a really good book. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called Good Faith. And uh, the whole premise of the book is how do we as Christians be people whose faith is of value to a culture and a, and a, a, a community and people who are like, you're of no use for culture, you're of no use for my, my perspective, my worldview, um, because I think that's one of the most challenging things that we're facing in our day is how do we as Christians engage with so much of the culture that really could care less about what we think and thinks we're crazy? Um, and so as we, as we think about this today, um, one of the greatest challenges that I believe culture has toward the church um, is the hypocrisy in the church. Um, and if you're human, you're a hypocrite. Can we just be honest? Right? If you're human, you're a hypocrite. I stand up to you in many ways as a hypocrite because there's, there's areas of my life that I fight and I struggle and there's sin that I'm battling and I'm, I'm working through. Um, and all of us want to put our best foot forward and we do and we try. Um, but we're all different in ways than we project we all have hypocrisy in our life. Um, but, but the culture, as they look at the church, they say, you, you say one thing, yet you do another. You judge the world, which is interesting because Paul specifically said toward the end of this passage, who am I to judge outsiders? Let's put that out there. I'm not really going to talk about that, but let's put that out there and let you do what you want with that. But it goes on and... You judge the world, yet you do the same things. You think you're better than us, the world would say to us, but you live and act just like us, and in some ways even worse. So that's, that's the passage here. So we're looking at an extreme example here. Let's just be honest in many ways. A, a, an extreme example of sin in the church in 1 Corinthians 5 um, and how Paul directs the church to deal with this. And so um, in, in verse 1, 
It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Um, So I think the church is, over the past 10 years of my experience, um, from what I grew up in to what I see the church becoming, um, I think there's there's a growing level of honesty among church people um, that we're normal human beings, um, and I think there's, there's a little less swagger. There's still a ton of it that needs to, that's terrible, but there's a little less swagger uh, surrounding the pride that a lot of Christians walk in, and um, even in the midst of their own grotesque sinfulness, and that's what Paul's addressing here. And one of the things that I think is a breath of fresh air to the culture is a people a body of believers that wouldn't project we're better than you, we have it all figured out, we're holy, you're not. But is it really, it's all a level playing field. We're not right and you're wrong. We're all wrong and Jesus is right and we're just trying to run hard after him. And I feel like that's where the church needs to go. And there's aspects where I kind of see it trying to go there to this place of honesty and vulnerability. And you don't come to this place to find perfect people who have God all figured out in a box, right? Who walk in this place with confidence that I've walked with Jesus and I haven't fallen into sin at all this week. No, we come into this place wretched and sinful and battling and human. So we have a tricky text a little bit today um, because we don't like to deal with our sinfulness, let alone talk about it. And the reason Paul points out that that's true is pride. It's actually reported, back to verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Nice little gentle words there. Um, doesn't really uh, suggest it, um, or hey, maybe you should think about this. He's like, this is what you are. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Here's the truth. Pride keeps us from dealing with sin. We all have it. I mean, think about it. Think about what you're battling with. Think about what you're walking through. Some of you, it's sexual immorality. Some of you, it's not that at all. Like that's never swayed you or never been an issue, but it's something else, Right? And, and we don't want to address it because, one, it, it, it's, it's awkward and it's hard and it's challenging. Um, but we don't like to be humbled. Paul is coming to a church who has taken their pre-Christ identity and is trying to pull it into their walk with Jesus. And to live the same they lived before Christ changed them. And he's, he's calling them out and saying, this isn't your identity. But partly because they need to be discipled. He says these words, if you look up in your Bible in chapter 4 or up on the screen, he says these words in chapter 4. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's encouraging. He's, he's, he's like, I don't want you to sit under the weight of the heavy hammer of what I'm bringing to you. He's like, I want to encourage you into the life that God has for you. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul's saying, you need, you need to grow up. 
as God's people, we need to be people that are growing up into belief, growing up into maturity. And here's what's very intriguing to me. How does he say we're to grow up? Look back at the text. What does he call them out for? Pride. What does he say their attitude should be? Mourning. So it's interesting. I think the way you grow up, the way I grow up, is by learning to mourn. Huh. It's interesting. You're arrogant. Shouldn't you be mourning? What is he saying? He's calling them to a place of of humility. He's calling them to a place of not hard-heartedness or indifference to situations around us. Because when we're hard-hearted and when we're indifferent to situations that are around us, we stifle the growth in our own hearts and in our own communities. Think about that. When we're indifferent to injustice, what do we do? We just let it continue. We let it fester. When we're indifferent to any kind of sin, it just festers and it stifles the flourishment. I mean, just go throw a bunch of dirt on your flowers and keep doing that, keep doing that, keep doing that. What does it do? It's going to kill them. It's going to kill them. It's going to destroy their beauty. And as the church, what do we have to realize is what I have to realize is when I leave my sin undealt with, it's detrimental to me. And it's detrimental to you. But even corporately, it was when we let sin fester among us, it's detrimental to us as individuals and it's detrimental to us corporately. So, so think about this for a second. Why, why is it important that we learn to mourn? He says, you're prideful. Are you, not, are you not better to mourn? I think more than anything, it reminds us of our humanity. So um, we found out last night that one of my um, kids' teachers passed away. Um, been at Russell for n- a number of years. Just amazing lady, one of the most happy, joyful people. Um, at the end of the year, she was virtually normal from what everyone else could perceive. And uh, come to find out, she had a brain disorder um, that basically killed her in a month. She went from normal to uh, basically given a month to live to giving, given a week to live. And we found out last night that, that she died of Crutchfield-Jacobs disease at the age of 43. Um, and, and, and we've mourned. My, my kids have mourned that. Sorry, I know this is not the point of what I'm getting at, I guess, but my kids have mourned that, which is hard, right? Like, to have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old to feel the weight of, like, what? She's gone? And what it, what it remi- here's what it reminds us of. We're human. Like, you're not a superhero, can't just do whatever you want. Your days are numbered. My days are numbered. I need help outside of myself. If I'm going to do of anything of value in this life, 
and what it has for the next. We need something outside of ourselves. We can't be our own savior. It humbles us. Mourning humbles us. And Paul is addressing this extreme and unique situation in the church here. And he's calling the elders and the believers in Corinth to not let sin fester. So he's calling them to a, to a heart and a place of, of humility. Because here's what's at stake. Not just a low view of sin. Okay, it's bad enough to have a low view of sin and be like, sin, eh, eh, sin isn't that big of a deal, whatever. But what's at stake is the health and vitality of the community. Because when you have a low view of sin, it eventually will destroy the community where that sin is... I mean, that's, that's our world, right? Because where sin isn't dealt with and where sin isn't surrendered to the cross of Jesus... It destroys. So let's think about this. How, how, how do we humbly address sin? Because that's what Paul is, in, is instructed. Don't be prideful about it, but mourn. Go to verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those aren't, um, those words are hardly uh, just a low view of sin, right? Um, uh, We'll get more specific here in a second regarding deliver this man um, to Satan. Um, Let's talk for a second about the extreme, and then we'll deal with the less extreme um, the sin here is incest, specifically forbidden under Mosaic law in Leviticus 18. It's reached a place where it's out of control. Have you ever been around things that are out of control? Like, what are some things that just get out of control? Does anybody have weeds in their yard? Or you just wait till it, no. Wow, can we, can we do, we're going to do a landscaping seminar right following this, uh, this service. <laughs> And the McAllisters, um, they're going to take you to their front yard and uh, show you the... Uh, um, right? I mean, you're, you think your weeds in your yard aren't bad. Just wait till it gets to like 95 and 100. And all of a sudden, they're going to be like... Look, I had, I had grass. My yard was amazing. Now it's brown and my kids' feet are cut up when they walk. Right? Or... Laundry. Anybody laundry ever getting out of control? You're like, our laundry lives out of control. Your kids come, I need socks. Check the dryer. None of the dryer. Try the washer. And they'll, it's hot. They'll dry by noon. Have you ever been there? Um, anybody want to do a laundry seminar later? <laughs> You're like, I got this in the back. Okay. Yeah, no. Oh, it's, it's, the, it's the, like, single. Oh, probably not the singles. It's the... Uh, Never mind, I'll just stop now. But things that get out of control, um, we can resonate with those. In this situation, we're talking about a sin issue in the church. Um, In Matthew 18, we have a specific passage that talks about steps to dealing with sin. How do we as God's people address sin? Um, So let me just walk through this so you can kind of get a handle. Because these passages really go hand in hand. Because what Paul's doing is he's calling the church in Corinth to address sin, and it's gotten to the last level of addressing it. Because apparently, either they haven't done steps 
1 through 3, um, or clearly it hasn't worked. So here, here, here's the steps. The fir- first step, um, approach someone one-on-one. Approach someone one-on-one. Um, they won't ever had someone come to them and say, hey, I just want to talk to you about this. I'm concerned about this. I love you. Um, just want to encourage you with this and challenge you to, to fight the sin here. That's the call. That as God's people, as the church, that we would walk in relationship with one another to where we would see ungodliness pop up, that we would encourage one another and admonish one another out of that. To where that doesn't work, step two, grab a couple other people that love and care about the person and go to them. And admonish them and encourage them and charge them not to walk in ungodliness. Where that doesn't work, the instruction is tell the church as, so that as a body, the church can admonish and love the person. And step four, if that doesn't work, what we see in our passage here and what we see in Matthew 18, it says to, to treat them like an unbeliever or hand them over to Satan. What? Isn't that crazy? Okay, let's talk. Um, this, this phrase, hand them over to Satan, appears a couple different times in Scripture. Um, and it really deals with a, with a broader view of what it looks like for God's will and God's sovereignty to come to fruition even through the hands of, and the work of, of Satan. That God's, God's powerful. Okay? Because he, here, here's what we know. What's the point of discipline? Like, I don't discipline my kids so that they hate me and so that they don't change, right? I do it because of love. I do it because I, 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 I want them, like, there's more for their life than what they're living. And I, I want that for them. They don't realize they want that and long for that. That's the point here. That, that's the context of the heaviness here. You've got to try to see through the weeds of the heaviness of what we're addressing to see the love of God and beckoning us out of the waywardness of our hearts. So 1 Timothy 1, here's one instance. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy, young guy trying to live out his faith among a community of believers. This, this I charge you, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. Okay, so he's like, here's how you hold fast to faith in your life and in the life of those around you. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's like, in a sense, man, we've, we've, we've challenged you, we've encouraged you, we've warned you. And at this point, we're just going to release you to continue with the belief that God would break you through the work of the enemy to bring you back to me, is what he's getting at. Okay, here's another example. Big picture, God using even evil to bring about his sovereign plan. Um, because there's a, those are sinful, broken people, right? What about Job? holy, upright man. Satan comes to Job, or comes to God and says, I want him. 
What does God say? Job 2.6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hands, only spare his life. So what does God do? He uses Satan to sanctify Job, to ultimately bring him to a place of becoming a worshiper of the one true God. Okay, so there's times where God's going to allow Satan to be the sanctifier of our soul. Because God loves us that much. And the truth is, is it's going to get a lot uglier before it gets a lot prettier in this context. God can use Satan to carry out his will, even to bring a person back to him. Listen, the entire point of this whole conversation is restoration and transformation. I think there's two ways that you can hand someone over to Satan. In, in a church context. One is that you would remove them. Say, you're not, you're not welcome here. This guy in 1 Corinthians 5, he was ruining things. He needed to go. He was stirring up so much trouble, he needed to go. There's other instances where handing someone over to Satan means, man, you're welcome here. We just don't see you as a believer. We see you as an unbeliever. So that's why, it's, it's why in the passage it uses the, the idea of treat them as an unbeliever. Right? We discipline because we love. We discipline because we care. What happens? Have you ever been around kids who aren't disciplined? Um, we, had a, we had one of my daughter's friends over from school. Not by choice, but because he showed up. Um, and he was wearing his normal clothes, and within an hour, he was swimming in my pool. Uh, this was a couple years ago. Um, his mom came to pick him up, and the kid would not get out of the pool. And it was just absolute chaos. You could tell he had no respect for his mom. And, uh, and I just went up to him, and I was like, listen, buddy, if you're going to be at my house, you're going to listen to your mom, and you're going to do what you're told. Your mom asked you to get out of the pool. You need to get out of the pool right now or I will physically extricate you. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I, I wanted to. I was thinking it. I was like, I'm going to set you in your mom's arm. Like, you're still small. Um, no, but it was chaos. Why? Because there was no discipline. There were no boundaries set. There was no like, hey, hey, here's what I want for you. Oh, you crossed the line? Like, why? You can't do that. I love you. There were no boundaries set. It was chaos. That's what we're being instructed here, is that as God's people, we have boundaries to protect. And to set people in the context of love. Because here's the truth. A church that lets sin fester is... I mean, who wants to be around the kids that have no discipline in their life? Who wants to, like, I'm not inviting that family. Like, hey, let's have them over for dinner, babe. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, we should and we need to probably. But, like, it's not enjoyable, right? Imagine an unbeliever, a non-Christian who wants to come and see what God's about in the church. But the context of the church culture is, you can do whatever you want. All things are lawful for me. Sin can fester. No. No one wants to be around that. No Christian, no non-Christian wants to come be a part of a church where there's not some boundary set for a culture of love 
and mutual respect for one another. See how it harms not only us, but it harms our witness and what we're trying to do in, a, in, in reaching and loving people and calling them to know a God who's amazing. Four times in this passage, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, kick him out. Get him out of here. He's ruining things. Why? Because verse 5 says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. Do we kick him out because we don't like, we don't, we don't love you? No, we kick you out because we love you and because we love the all of you. Protection. But here's what you need to know. I would say what we see in this passage is probably 2% of dealing with sin and, and, and church, what we might call church discipline. The other 98% of addressing sin is you guys in each other's lives, me and you in my life, me and you your life, charging us to know and love God. That's, that's the call of God. What we see in this passage is Man, this has gotten to the point where I want to do whatever I want. No one's going to stop me. Which shouldn't lead to pride, right? Like Paul called them out. It should lead to mourning and grief. So how do we do this? Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So unleavened bread was bread that had no yeast, so they would take... Leaven was they'd take a piece of dough and they'd save it for the next week's batch so that it would ferment... And then they would take that and they would knead it into the dough. And what would it do? It would contaminate, if you will, the entire lump of dough. Okay, that's the picture that, um, that's being used here. That a little bit of leaven leavens the whole thing. So leaven is sin. The illustration is leaven is sin. And when you have a little bit of sin, it's going, it's going to, then you let it fester. It's going to contaminate the whole thing. Paul's saying, live as you are, God's people, you're holy and forgiven. He says, you are already unleavened. He's like, you've been set free from sin. Live that way. The old is gone, the new has come. You're already unleavened, yet you boast. Your boasting is not good. Here's the perverse nature of sin, especially sexual immorality, but I think it relates to all sin is that we think we are managing it. We think we got it under wraps. And before you know it, you're in bed with your stepmom. Like, no one like, plans that, right? Like, well, most people don't plan that, right? Look, we don't set out in 20 years, this is how perverse and evil I want to be. No. We just don't have any boundaries. And we think we got it. And we think we got it for years. Man, but you get 20, 30 years down the road, and you look back and you're like, gosh, how did I get here? How did I get here? 
I didn't have discipline in my life. I didn't have boundaries in my life. People tried to love me, but I ignored them. God tried to love me and discipline me, but I ignored it. The way you plan for it is by not having a plan to fight against it. The way you plan to become a perverse, wicked, evil person that wants to do harm to all is by not having a plan to fight against it. Because the sinful nature is that that's who we become. Self-serving people. And that's the truth. If you don't have an aggressive plan to fight sin in your life, it will take you out. If I don't have an aggressive plan, I'm not saying that means you've got to have like an Evernote file and 17 points and your action item, but you need to be in community and people that allow people that love you to speak into your heart and speak into your life. And one, be humble enough to be like, maybe I'm wrong. Like if we would just start there, if I would just start there as, a, as an individual, that maybe my perspective... Maybe what I think about myself or maybe what I think about my, my life and my sinfulness or my lack thereof that I may think of, maybe I'm wrong. And I would just be a, a listener for someone who might say, hey, I just want to, I'm concerned about this. What? what? No. When they say, hey, I'm concerned about this, you say, yeah, man, what? talk to me. What are, you, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? You don't come up with your fists up. You come wanting to listen and learn because we're a part of a community that wants to grow together. Matthew chapter 5 says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I want you to, I just brought this up because I want you to see, um, when I say having an aggressive plan, I want to give you, here's the game plan. Okay, here we go. We'll, we're going to implement this in response time. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body will be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So we'll have a gouging station and a chopping stick. No. Um, no, it's extreme language because, because Jesus is saying, it's serious. He's not saying actually gouge your eye out, probably. I mean, maybe. But no, probably not. He's saying, take it seriously. I said it last week. Put yourself in an environment where you can succeed. If you're sugar, if you're sugar intolerant, you shouldn't live in a candy store. Like, oh, but it's so awesome. Yeah, it's killing you. That's what he's getting at. So how do we do this? Here's the question I want to I answer two questions as we land the plane. How does our own pride keep us from addressing sin in the church? How does our own pride keep us from addressing sin in the church? Here's, here's what I think. Here's what pride says. I'm most important. which has a whole lot of effect on a lot of things. But it says, I'm most important, not you. So what you think about me doesn't matter. What I think about you matters. 
So the sin in your life doesn't matter because everything's about me. And the sin in my life doesn't matter because what you have to say doesn't matter because it's all about me. Because I'm most important. So I'm not willing to listen. I'm not willing to learn. I'm not willing to humble my heart and to consider the fact that I may be wrong. I'm most important. Now flesh that out among the 60 people that are here. Flesh that out, that type of attitude out among 120, 300, 500, I mean, thousands. I mean, like, what happens? A perverse culture. Or it could be, here's one of the ways it might manifest itself, in fear, right? Like, you feel like you're supposed to go confront someone, talk to someone, encourage someone. You're like, well, like, what if I'm wrong? Like, I really feel like I should talk to this person about it. Like, what, what, if, what, if I'm, what if I'm not seeing it right? fear what if they ask me how I found out well that'd be better than them ruining their life right all the what ifs play out all the fears and there's so many other ways that the sin of pride you can, you can think about that on your own how does pride keep us from addressing sin in the church how does, how does pride keep you from addressing sin in your own heart Sin in the lives of others. Because listen, it's there for all of us. And most of us are in the fight, and we know that it's there, and we're fighting against it. That's the nature of the Christian life, is that we're fighting through the Spirit to become in practice who we already are in God's eyes. It's just, you just got to be honest that you're in that fight. And some of us just aren't maybe even fighting Think about what would enable sin to grow. Um, I was helping a neighbor the other day. He asked me to come into his basement and help him with something, and, and we're downstairs by his furnace, and he points at the ground and he says, What's that? And I looked down, and my first thought was, That's a great question. And here's what it was. So coming off the furnace, you have your drain hose, right? And where does the drain hose go to? A drain. So office furnace, drain hose, and there was a puddle of something there. It was black and green, and there was no drain. I'm like, huh, like this hose should go to a drain. There's no drain. Well, come to find out there was a drain. You just couldn't see it anymore. Okay? Um, it had gunked up so bad, I had to take a screw, I had to... Talk about, like, what does humility look like in dealing with grotesque, we'll just say sin. Um, I I had to get down, and I had to take a screwdriver, and more so my fingers, and I had to, like, okay, what is this? Don't worry, I put on plastic gloves and a suit. No, I didn't. Um, And uh, and so, like, I started, like, scraping, and he had no clue, like, what I was even doing or that there was supposed to be a job. I was like, there it is, and he's like, what? It's like the drain. He's like, what are you talking about? tell you later. So, um, so I, I had to like scrape it up and, and, and like clear it for him. I was like, all right, I got it. I got it unclogged. Like this is all rusty. Like you probably need to get a new drain. And on top of that, do you know what all this is? And he's like, huh? I was like, it's mold. And it was just this pool of mold growing in his basement. And he has numerous kids in his family. 
that you know always stay out of those areas that they're not supposed to be in. No, they're probably playing in that stuff, right? So did that, did he clean that last night and then the next day that's how it got? No, right? Over time, over time, undealt with, undealt with, undealt with. What? It becomes, it doesn't function as it's supposed to, right? A drain that takes the water out of the house, it clogs up. And then it becomes hazardous to everybody. And that's what had happened. That's what pride does, is it lets it, and we just won't deal with that. And before you know it, it's moldy and nasty. And then if you're going to tack, if you're going to try to tackle it, you're like, gosh, why didn't I, why didn't I deal with this before? would have been so much easier. would have been so much easier. But now, i got to hum- really humble myself and really get in the nastiness of it to actually make, get it to the way it was designed to function. Pride. we got to deal with our pride. But secondly, what does it look like to mourn? Here's the question. How does learning to mourn cultivate a beautiful bride in a healthy church? 2 Corinthians 7 says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Notice the connection here. I'll talk about it in a second. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produced a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen, repentance is the fruit of mourning. He talks about godly grief produces repentance. So we get to a place where we're willing to humble our heart. That's where true repentance comes. Is a humble state that says, I'm, I'm so wrong. I'm so wrong. And here's the thing is it takes courage. Because oftentimes in confessing sin, it's wounding. And very hurtful. And you're like, I don't know how people will respond. But here's the truth of the matter is that if you leave it and you let it fester and you don't pursue the humility of mourning and the humility of repentance, it's only going to get more and more toxic. It's only going to get more and more toxic. Here's verse 7 and here's where I want to end it. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may, may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Listen, the instruction here for us, for this church here, but also for this church here, is that we would be the people of God that we are in Christ. He says, cleanse it out. Be who I've made you to be. For it's in being who I've made you to be that the community will flourish and you will flourish. That's who Jesus is. That's what he's done. That's who he's made us to be is that there's no condemnation in Christ. But it requires some boldness and some courage to deal with the things that are going on in our hearts. Let's pray um, and then we'll prepare to respond to the Lord.
Father, thank you for making a way for us. Thank you for making a way so that we don't have to sit under the weight of our sin and our shame. Thank you for your lavish love and amazing forgiveness. God, thank you for loving us enough to not leave us in the mess. God, would we just be willing to receive that love? God, humble our hearts and teach us and lead us to a place of responding to you. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I pray freedom over us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.